uh, we have a lot to cover today. We're continuing in the book of Joshua. This has been, uh, we call it a life lived for God. It's been an amazing study. Today is our 39th message. Praise the Lord. And we're all the way to chapter 6. Woohoo! About three years, we're going to wrap up Joshua. It's going to be amazing. I'm so excited. Um, but last weekend, last weekend I, I mentioned in that message, I talked about the pause that God has in verses 17 through 19. And what happens here is God gives some sort of insight. He gives us a little further detail on what's to come. Not in regards to what's to come in regards to the battle plan of what's going to happen, but what God's expectations are. But before we get there, I want to take just a moment. For those that are joining us, I know there are, I, I hear about people that join us late, and, and I want you to have an, a firm understanding of kind of what's going on in the book of Joshua, what's taking place. Joshua starts off with the death of Moses. Moses has died, and Moses has trained his disciple, which is Joshua. And Joshua steps up and becomes the leader of the Israelites. But not only is he to be their leader, but he's also to be their uh, God's representative to his people. So Joshua fulfills this role. And what Joshua does is Joshua leads them or brings them into the promised land. And in bringing them to the promised land, they had to cross over the Jordan River. And what we studied in our study, and obviously we did an intensive study, was we looked at the word Jordan. Jordan, which Jor means to spread, and Dan means judgment. So we see the river literally is a picture of spreading judgment. And what God does is he holds back the waters with his hands, and the people cross on dry land. Dry land is a picture of deliverance. So we see here God holding back judgment as his people cross into the promised land on dry land, which just happens to be a picture of today, where you and I are trying to get to the promised land with God. And what does God do? God's holding back judgment. We call it the age of grace, where God is holding back judgment upon the world as we speak. So we see all these remarkable pictures that are taking place. And what we saw here is this picture of deliverance, this picture of mercy. And we understand that this spiritual, there's a spiritual parallel to the promised land. For them, it was a land flowing with milk and honey. It was a physical land called Canaan. For us, it's a spiritual place. It's a place where we reach a point of, 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 of contrition, a point of, of brokenness, a, point, a, a place of, of intimacy with God. It's where we walk in fellowship, in fellowship with the Lord. So there's the spiritual alternative or the spiritual comparison. But what's interesting is with them, in order to get to the promised land, in order to possess it, there will be obstacles in their way. And the first obstacle they're going to come to is a place called Jericho. Jericho just happens to be a picture, biblically, of the world. In order to possess our promised land spiritually, guess what? There are going to be obstacles in our way. As we try to get in this intimacy with God, there are going to be struggles that we're going to face. And just like the Israelites, it will not be through our strength that we will achieve this. It will be through, through the Lord. In John 16, he says this, these things, this is the Lord, these things have I spoken unto you, that in, in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation. Understand that's just a part of life, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. God overcomes the world, not the Israelites. does not overcome Jericho. He's going to overcome Jericho. We don't overcome the world. God does. So at this point in time, what happens is Joshua, they have faithfully marched around Jericho. Now, we know they've gone around 13 times. One day, for each, each of the six days, they went one time around. Then on the seventh day, they circled seven times. And what's happening is God's getting ready to deliver Jericho in a miraculous way. We could say it this way, overcoming the world, right? It's through his power. And last week's message was titled The Seventh Day. And what we did was we understood the correlation that God had in considering this march and what was required of the people. What was required of them to reach this point of the second, seventh day? First, we looked at was their punctuality, the fact that they were willing to get up early, that the dawn of the day we saw. And we saw not only is there a wonderful precedence of meeting with God in the morning, we saw plenty of examples of that, and there are tons in Scripture of meeting with God in the morning. 
And that's something we should certainly do. But what we also saw is the fact that God is literally pointing to the coming of the Lord, the second coming, picturing the dawn. The Bible calls it, uh, you can look in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, and it talks about the dawn, it says uh, the rising, it says the sun of righteousness with healing in his wings. And it uses the word sun, S-U-N. But interestingly enough, the only place in Scripture where this happens, but S-U-N is capitalized. Because it's pointing to the fact that the Lord is going to return at the dawning of a new age, and it will be on that seventh day. So we look at that seventh, second coming of the Lord. Then we looked at their consistency and the fact that they circled for all seven days. They just kept doing what was asked of them. They didn't know, they didn't remember, they didn't know the plan. Joshua didn't explain to them what was going on or why they were even circling. They didn't understand what was going on, but they trusted him and they were consistent in following and doing what he asked of them. They just, they just kept going. Then we looked at their longevity and we considered that on that seventh day, they circled seven times. They had had a daily routine for all the first six days. Circle once, gather your stuff, go to camp. Then on day seven, circle once, and Joshua keeps going. They're like, whoa. But no one complains. They simply trust him, and they walk by faith and not by sight. And through faithfully fulfilling what God's asked of them, what they've done is they showed and revealed their loyalty, their loyalty to God and their loyalty to Joshua. And what that did was it caused us to think about the loyalty that God has to us, which is undying, which is unmatched which is never-ending, as He continually reaches out to humanity, as undeserving as we, may, as we may be. He offers salvation. He offers redemption to any and all who would believe, anyone willing to hear. But so when we thought about that imminent return of the Lord, that seventh day, we considered our loyalty to God. And we wrapped up that message thinking about what our loyalty is supposed to be like. Our loyalty should be revealed or displayed through the impact that our lives have on the souls of others. That's how God's going to measure our success. It's going to be measured in the souls of men and women and boys and girls. And it was here that you and I were challenged to not focus our attention and dedicate the time that we have left on earth to the work of, to the work of man, but to the work, the work of God. And so with Jericho literally moments away from this amazing victory taking place. At this point in time, the walls look solid, they look strong, but literally we are seconds away from them just crashing to the ground. But in this pause, God's going to give some behavioral guidelines for the Israelites as that victory comes, things they'll need to know. And guess what? It's going to fit us as well. So this message morning this morning is called Off Limits. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this uh, time you've given us in the Word Lord, I do pray that you'll uh, help me to get out of the way. God, I know you've spoken to me through the week. I have prayed diligently over this message, and God, I have asked, and Lord, I know that you have spoken. And Lord, I'm asking now uh, that you've spoken to me. I'd ask that, Lord, you would speak through me, that, uh, Lord, the words that I share would not be the ones that I would choose, but God, that the very Spirit of God would guide and direct uh, my speech. And Lord, I pray that it also guide and direct our hearts uh, in receiving truth. Lord, I pray that you'll alter us, that you'll shape us. God, that you'll direct us uh, to be more in the image of your Son than we ever were before. In Jesus' name, amen. Joshua 6, verses 17 through 19. It says, And the city shall be accursed, even it and all that are therein. To the Lord, only, only, the harlot, only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all that are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And ye in any wise keep yourselves from the accursed thing, lest ye make yourselves accursed, when ye take of the accursed thing and make the camp of Israel accursed and trouble it. Verse 19, but all the silver and gold and vessels of brass and iron are consecrated unto the Lord. They shall come into the treasury 
of the Lord. So what we see here are guidelines designed to protect the Israelites from themselves, okay? The, the Bible is loaded with these for the Israelites, but guess what? It's also loaded with lots of them for, for us as well, because guess what? Many times we are our own worst enemies when it comes to our walk with God. And we're going to see in verse 17, he's going to def define for us two groups. He's going to define for us, first of all, the accursed, and then he's going to reveal to us the redeemed. Then when we get to verses 18 and 19, what God's going to do is he's going to give his expectations of his people. Here he's going to show us the impact of disobedience and the impact of holiness. So first, let's examine the accursed, okay? So it's verse 17, and the city shall be accursed, even it and all that are therein to the Lord. Now we know from our study that this city is Jericho. Jericho, what do we know about Jericho? Jericho was a great walled city and the eastern border of Canaan. And what's interesting about that with the walls, with the walls were so great and so large that they actually had homes built within of them. In then of them. That didn't even make any sense. They have walls in them, let's just put it that way. So Rahab lives within those walls. Her house is literally built right into the wall. So these things are are massive. They could be as big as this building. We don't we don't really know. But what we find here is the fact that the people there, they were they were under the control of a wicked ruler. And they had given their allegiance to him in rebellion against the Lord. So this massive city is literally fortified against God, trying to keep his influence outside of their society. Does that sound like any place we can think of? Mm. It's a bit like our world today, right? Yep. So we see this cursed city. So not only is the city cursed, but it says that the people that are inside of it, the inhabitants, are also going to be cursed. And interestingly enough, as I said, Jericho is a picture of the lost world, is a picture of the world which stands in opposition to God. And our world stands in opposition to God. It has walled itself off from God. And not by coincidence, the walls of the city of our world, they're formed of homes. Families that have lived ungodly lives that have established their children, not in a Christian home, not where they've learned the principles and ideas of what the Bible says, but they've lined and strict and given them the information that comes from the world. And those homes, though many call themselves Christians, because of the ungodly behavior, have raised a generation of kids who, guess what? They also oppose God. They stand in opposition to Him. And it's this impact. It's this rebellion that's infiltrated every level of our society. We see it in our schools. We see it in homes. We see it in our, in our societal, societal strength as well. And what happens is people are swearing their allegiance to the world yep. and the ruler of this world as opposed to allegiance to God. And what does this world do? What does it do? It, it fortifies us and strengthens us in our pride, our, our, our love of self, mm -hmm. materialism, that's what this is all about. Those things separate us from God. While at the same time, at the very same moment, denigrating faith in God, denigrating righteous living, and literally the, the idea of ultimate accountability, hey, I'm my own God. I don't, I don't stand in accountability to anybody. And as believers, guess what? This is the world that we come from. <laughs> this, is where, this is where we were born and raised. This is where I grew up for 34 years of my life. I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I didn't raise, wasn't raised anybody that was even Christian-like. And I just lived the way that I lived because I didn't know any better. But thank God He intervened in my life. And He sent someone to tell me the truth, to reach my wife and I. August 11th, man, 2001. I'll never, ever, ever forget it and never get over it. 
But Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2, tell us where we come from. And you hath he quickened, brought to life spiritually, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in times past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. This is the world we live in today. People stand in rebellion to God. And because of the rebellion and godlessness, God is going to bring judgment. There is a day coming when God is going to bring judgment. Not only against Jericho, but against this world. Every single one of us, whether people want to accept it or not, we are still all accountable to God. It does not matter if we accept it or not because judgment day is coming. It could be tomorrow. It could be today. But up to this point, what's happened? Jericho. It it is surrendered. Jericho has been given the opportunity to surrender their hearts to God. They have literally seen seven days now, 13 times they've seen the size of God's army. They've heard the stories of God's arrival. The Bible tells us they are fearful. They fear God. They have an understanding of that. They believe that He's real. And yet, here they go. They see the army coming. 13 times they've circled them. 13 times they've heard the trumpets announcing God's arrival. 13 times they've seen the strange veiled object being carried by four, carried by four priests, the ark of the Lord. And they've had opportunities through every one of those moments they could have opened that gate and said, hey, hey, I want to be with you guys. I understand what's coming. You know what? I don't want to be a part of this anymore. I, I, want, I want to be set free. But understand, God is offering judgment or offering salvation, not only to them, but at the same time, God is willing to spare anyone who would turn to Him. Judgment is coming. There is no doubt about it. That is a truth that is going to happen. But God is offering salvation to the world today. No matter who we are or where we come from, any and all who will believe. Romans 10 verses 9 through 13 says this, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. This is not a religious thing. This is not a ceremonial thing. This is a heart. It says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart. That's the key. That God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. We receive Christ through our heart, through our faith. And with the mouth confession is made into salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It doesn't get any more clear than that. Whosoever. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your background is or how far you've fallen. God does not care because guess what? He's ready and willing to restore you. God's gift of eternal life, salvation, the penalty, salvation from the penalty of sin is available to anyone, no matter where our, or what our background is or what our story is. A lot of us could probably share stories of who it is we used to be. And praise God, we're no longer that person anymore because God redeemed us. It comes down to this. Who has our allegiance? Right? Is it the God of this world or the God of heaven? Every day we get to choose. Which brings us to the second group. Those that are, are redeemed. Verse 17 continues. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all that are with her in the house. Now this passage, just like all those before, it identifies Rahab as a harlot. Interestingly enough, that's always the moniker attached to her. 
What's interesting, now, what's a harlot? A woman is, a harlot is a woman who, ex, who uh, uh, engages in sexual acts outside of the marriage covenant, okay? The Bible calls this fornication. And what's interesting is when you go through Scripture and you look at the penalty for sexual sin, what you'll find is many times, most times, it's punishable by death. God takes it very, very seriously. So here we have a person who is going to be spared from death. Get this, okay? She's going to be spared from death, being identified as one who is worthy of death. There's something there. Worthy of death, yet she's going to be spared. She, not only her, but her and her whole family. Why? Well, it says in verse 17, because she hid the messengers that we sent. Right? Rahab received the messengers of God. And we know not only did she receive the messengers, but guess what? She also received the message. She had ears to hear. She was willing to listen to their message. In fact, when we go to Joshua chapter 2, we listen to her response to their message. It says this, Joshua 2, verses 12 and 13. This is Rahab. Now, therefore, I pray you, swear unto me by the Lord. She's going to make a promise to me, please, by God. She's trusting in the L-O-R-D, capital L-O-R-D, Jehovah. Since I have showed you kindness, that ye also show kindness unto my father's house and give me a true token. Make a promise to me. Please make a vow to me. I'm making a vow to you through my actions that ye will save alive my father and my mother and my brethren and my sisters and all they have and deliver our lives from death. She says, listen, hey, look, because of what my faith has displayed to you, will you save our souls? Will you save our souls? And see, not only this is this a testament to the one receiving the message, but it's also to the ones that are, deserved, that are, that are, that are delivering the message. Recognize they risked themselves to do this. They risked themselves. They went there for just Rahab and her family. There was nothing that we see that was really of gain for this trip, but God had a purpose to reach a person. God had a purpose to reach me the night that we got saved. God sent someone to tell us the truth. Verse Romans 10, verses 14 through 15. How then shall they call on him and whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe on him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a, without a preacher? The term preacher just simply means someone who speaks the gospel. That's any one of us. And how shall they preach? Except they be sent, and as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. And as believers, guess what? Living in our Jericho, we're in our Jericho right now. What are we supposed to be doing? We're supposed to not point fingers at the sins of those we're trying to reach, the Rahabs in our world. We're supposed to bring them the message of salvation. The very same thing that someone brought to us. Amen. Because it was the faithfulness of those messengers along with the faith of Rahab that saved her. Notice what it says in Hebrews eleven thirty one: By faith, the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. See, it was her actions that testified of the genuineness of her faith. She wasn't just playing games. She wasn't claiming godliness and living like the world that was around her. That's the message for us. Listen to what he says in Titus 2.12. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. While you're in the midst of your Jericho, you need to be living as if you are in heaven. Live like Christ. Listen, she was living in a country that was no longer hers. She, is, she had received the message of the good news. She knew she was going to be saved. They made a promise or a vow to her. So 
So here she is amongst a people that she's no longer a part of, that she's no longer identifies as her identity. And what she's doing, she's waiting for her God to deliver her. Right? Through her actions, she's claiming her new citizenship as a child of God. Amen. And listen, through that identity that she's claiming right here as one of God's, guess what he's going to do? God's going to allow her to be in the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ, an ancestor of the Savior. You're going to see her name in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. Now, it's going to be in, her, in the Greek rendering. When you see her name there, it's going to be Rachab, but it's Rahab. And you'll see Boaz. His name is Booz in Greek. Not very nice to him. But uh, Matthew 1, 5 and 1, 6, it says this. And Salmon begat Booz of Rachab, and Booz begat Obed of Ruth, and, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah. Rahab was the great-great-grandmother of King David. And we also notice the fact that Rahab, she reached her family. Because what we do know is this, whenever the messengers came, they didn't meet with the family. They met with Rahab and Rahab alone. So she not only received the messengers and received the message, but then she would have taken that message and shared it with her family. Now we know what happens. She's so sincere. She's so believing and so faithful. They receive it from her. Do you remember what happened to Lot when he went to his sons-in-law's? And he tried to share with them the fact that God was coming, and they, they laughed him to scorn. They were like, Lot, you? You're telling us about God? Dude, you live amongst everybody else. You look just like everybody else in this place. See, there's a difference. If we look like the world, people aren't going to take us seriously. That's right, right. But if there's something different about us, the Bible says we're supposed to be a peculiar person, right? The sons and daughters of God. You and I should not look like this world. People should see us and see a difference because it's that difference that makes them take us seriously. And what happens is she reaches her whole household. So not only did she receive the message, but then she was faithful to share the message with those that would listen. And guess what they got? They got saved too. Amen. What a lesson for us. Yes. Oh, that we would be like Rahab. Mm -hmm. And we think, whoa, okay. Rahab the harlot, you're saying we should be like Rahab the harlot? Yeah. Well, our, her story is just like ours. Yeah. Listen, our sin made us worthy of death. Yep. The Bible tells us, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. How many times do you have to lie to be a liar? One time. How many times do you have to sin to be a sinner? One time. No one, the Bible says, for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. We all got the same problem. So let's not put ourselves on some kind of high, high and mighty place and think that we're something special because we haven't done certain sins. But guess what? They'll all keep you out of heaven. So what happens is here's God. He's saying, look, the wages of sin is death. You are, you have earned because of the sin of your life, you've earned a spiritual death sentence. But because of God's great love and God's incredible forgiveness, he offers us a path to life through his sacrificial death on our behalf. An unbelievable love. That verse 23 continues. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So though we were deserving of death, God offers us a life yes. everlasting. Amen. See the picture there in Rahab? The Lord sent her messengers with good news of the coming of the Lord. And someone sent, if you're, if, you, if you're saved, God sent somebody to you. A soul winner. Someone gave you a track. A pastor, an evangelist, 
a friend, someone who was willing to share the truth, or maybe the whole the Word of God just gripped your heart. Some people get saved just from looking at the Word of God, just reading the Word, because the Spirit just grips their hearts. Mm-hmm. But listen, God's given us a promise. Not only that He would redeem us here in our spiritual form, but guess what? Also, that He would redeem us physically, that He would return for us. In John 14, 3, He says this, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. And where I am, there you may be also. He says, guess what? I'm coming back. But until I return, you're going to remain in the world that you came from. Only now you should not fit in like you used to fit in. Because guess what? You now possess the spirit of God that lives within you. And I have a purpose and a plan for your life. Your affections are no longer on the things of the earth, but now they're on the things, things above. You're not of this world. Jesus explains it to us in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's pr- in his prayer in John 17, verses 14 through 16. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And listen, because of our faith in God's imminent return, and we recognize the fact that this is coming, we should and we would share the salvation message to any and all who would listen, to those that would have ears to hear and believe the good news. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 20 through 21, tell us who it is we are supposed to be. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. Right? What does an ambassador do? They go to a foreign land and they represent where it is they've come from and they share the good news. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. This is the message we bring to the world. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. In him. Guys, the message is clear. The message is simple. The message is is life-changing. John 3.16, the most famous verse in the whole Bible. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the message of the gospel. That's the message that the Jerokin, the people, Jerokians, I don't know what that's, I have no idea how to, a Jerokian, let's call them that. Whoever lives in Jericho. Right? They're getting a message. They could be, they could see, they could come out, they could make a choice, but no, they don't. And what we find is the fact that, you know what? Almost all of them are going to face destruction. Almost every one of them will face destruction. And like in our world today, the majority of people will leave this world not knowing Christ. They might be religious. They might be good people according to the standards of the world. But if you never receive the gift of God through salvation in Christ, it doesn't matter how good you are because you're not good enough. None of us are. That's why Christ came. It says here in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, Enter ye at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Talking about the population of this world. Destruction. But see, for Rahab and her family, there's going to be a different story. (laughs) Hers is verse 14. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Praise the Lord. We don't find it by happenstance. We find it by choice receiving the gift of God. Amen. So he's, re- he's defined for us who the accursed are. He's defined for us who the redeemed are. It's a stark comparison of the way that God sees humanity. 
God doesn't say race or creed or color or any of those things or sex. God doesn't see any of that stuff. God sees us as two groups, redeemed and accursed. We're in one or the other. And what we find here is that all of humanity falls in these two categories. And this standards that God's giving, these standards of behavior, before the victory at Jericho, what he's trying to do is saying, look, you know what, I want to ensure that this victory is about honoring me. This victory is all about me because he understands the influence of evil and how powerful it is on humanity. We have a sin nature. Our old nature likes to do wrong things. It's easy to lie. It's much harder to tell the truth. God is trying to draw us to make the right choices. And now what he's going to do is he's preemptively trying to give them guidelines for their behavior. And we see the first of all, the impact of holiness, of unholiness. Verse 18. And ye in any wise keep yourselves from the accursed thing, lest ye make yourselves accursed. When ye take of the accursed thing and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. So I want us to take note of the personal tone of this verse. Everything else has been talking about the group, but God speaks now as if he's speaking to an individual instead of the collective. Notice the terms, the pronouns he uses are ye and yourselves. See, because the lure of sin is deeply personal. Deeply, deeply personal. Because our adversary preys on our individual weaknesses. He knows us. He knows us very well. And what happens is he customizes his attack to exploit our past failures. If you have had a weakness in the past, it did not go unnoticed. I can promise you. Why do you think the attacks always come from the same angle? Wherever you struggle, that's where you're going to get hit. So what's God doing? He's preemptively addressing the tactics that are going to be used against his people. He's trying to say, hey, listen, when the walls come crashing down, when the battle is over, when the dust settles, you are going to be surrounded with temptation. You've been living in the desert, nomads, with hardly anything. Now you're going to be standing amongst everything you could have ever dreamed of right at your fingertips. And you could gather it in your arms and have all that you wanted, everything you see, because guess what? It's all for the taking. God says, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh-uh, no. Touch nothing. Touch nothing. What happens is here they are standing in this abundance. And he's trying to say, hey, guess what? You take nothing for yourselves because I want you to understand this warning that I've given you, you must learn to take it seriously. This is their first big test. They've been faithful up to this point. And here they're going to go, man, the one thing that's going to get them, their flesh, their fleshly desires. And it's only through being aware of Satan's subtlety, right, that we can protect ourselves from those attacks. That's why God's warning them up front. You're getting ready to be tested, and before you get there, I need you to be mindful of what's to come. 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9, God speaking to us is this. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Listen to this, and this is how you do it. Whom resist steadfast in the faith, not in your flesh, not in your will, not in your mind. I'm going to not do this. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. No, it's not about that. It's about surrendering to the Spirit of God, that He leads our path and our steps as opposed to our flesh leading us, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. Listen, everybody's facing this. Everybody's got the same issues, the same struggles. And when we find ourselves in our Jericho, in the world, man, listen, we're going to be inundated with temptations. It's all around us. If you have access to the Internet, gracious me, there is such destruction available at the fingertip. 
with a point and a click, we could open a door to hell and destroy our souls through the things we're allowed to consume. It's unbelievable how much destruction is out there. But see, the devil knows. Do you think it's unusual that your phone alters its behavior and the things that it sets before you to customize to fit what you want? Because just what it does, it monitors you. And it customizes each little thing. If you linger on an image, it takes track. It looks, it pays attention. Guess what? That stuff starts to show up in your thing. Same way the devil works. In this life, he's going to constantly be laying temptations before us. This warning to the church is not only for those who are walking with God, but guess what? He says, he says for your brethren that are in the world, those that are not even close to God. Everybody's, everybody's struggling with it. And understand, this right here, they're going to prey on our weakest point of our Christian walk. We're only as strong as the weakest place in our Christian walk, our weakest our point of surrender. He lures and customizes it to fit us, and it's to draw us away from God. Whether it take advantage of our lust, our dissatisfaction, our bitterness, our anger, our greed, they'll be timed in such a way and tailored in such a way to have maximum impact. And if we're not walking in lockstep with God, they'll get our attention. They'll grab us. And the next thing you know, we'll be focused on it. King David is an amazing example of this. King David, a man who was, who said the Bible, this is a man after God's own heart, he was described. The only person in the Bible like that, a man after God's own heart. Go read the Psalms and listen to David's heart. Go read Psalm 119, 176 verses. It's just David's love of his word, his desire to walk with God, to do the right things. David's got a broken heart for God. And yet David had a weakness for women. He was only intended to have one wife. He had multiple wives. His son had the same problem, by the way. But we see this man after God's own heart. And the weakness is preyed upon. Because guess what? David wasn't where he was supposed to be. The Bible says he's supposed to be off at war, but guess what he decided? This time he's going to stay behind. A little idle time on his hands. Late in the day. That's yeah, a beautiful sunset. Maybe I'll just get up and go walk around a little bit. Walk around on the top of the castle. Take a look down and see what all around me. And this is what happened. 2 Samuel 11, verses 2 through 4. And it came to pass in the evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself. And the woman was very beautiful to look upon. So he sees this woman. It's called the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, right? Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes. And David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, one of his men said, is not, this Bath, is, yeah, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Uriah was one of his closest friends. A guy who had fought with him, literally risked his life for him time and time again. One of the most faithful men he had was Uriah. And David sent messengers and took her. That's the pride of life. Lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. All three right here. And she came in unto him and he lay with her. For she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house. And we know what happened. We know the story of David. We know the story of Bathsheba. We know the, the level of destruction that it had on his own personal walk with God and his family. It spread like wildfire through his family. It brought destruction for generations in his family. But remember what verse 18 said. How did it close itself? Verse 18 in Joshua 6. And ye and wise, keep yourselves from the accursed thing, lest ye make yourselves accursed when ye take the accursed thing. This is all about individual. 
and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. Interestingly enough. So individual sin doesn't just impact the individual, but also has destructive rippling effects to the people that are around us. And we look at that and we go, whoa. When we choose to do something that we know is outside of God's will, the things that he's warned us not to do, and then we turn around and we act like we're shocked that something happens to the people that we love, there's one of two things. Either we don't know the word of God, or we do not believe the word of God. Because I can promise you, whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. Deuteronomy 5.9 says this, Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. We go, oh, hate me. All that means is we've got our heart on the Lord, or on the one the world. Because the Bible says to be friends with the world is to be the enemy of God, in fact. So how many of us, think about this. How many of us are today still, I'm 54, almost 55 years old, still dealing with destructive behaviors that we grew up in our household, sin that affected us, and even today we are still dealing with it. And we are a first generation, maybe a second generation, maybe a third generation. Let us not do that to our kids. We have so much power in our choices to do good, yes, but at the same time bring great destruction. I want you to know the accursed thing, right? When we consider that, we go, what is that? Those are things that are not approved of by God. That's all that it means. That's all that it's saying. It's not the activity itself or the thing. It's the place that it falls in our life. It's the priority that it takes. Listen, if on Sunday I decide that I'm going to stay home, well, if I stayed home, it would really mess us up, but let's say I was a member of a church, (laughs) and I decide I'm going to skip church because the Cowboys are playing the... Washington team of, what are they called now? The Washington team, whoever they are, right? And I decide, you know what? Man, I've been waiting for this game all year. This is a big deal. And I decide to stay home. There's nothing wrong with football. Football's not sinful. Watching football, liking football, not sinful at all. The problem is when it takes priority over God. What I just said was, you know what? Yeah, God's important, but this is more important, right? And when I do that, what am I doing? I am teaching my children a valuable lesson for their future that, guess what? God's not always our first priority. There are some things that are more important to God, depending upon where our heart is. This is key because we are teaching our children to the good choices as well as the bad. It's much easier to do wrong. Our kids are more apt to follow our bad choices than they are our good. Remember what it said? And make the camp of Israel curse and trouble it. Man, how many things do we place before God? Next, let's consider the impact of holiness. Verse 19. But all the silver and gold and vessels of brass and iron are are consecrated unto the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So what we see here is that God is requiring the Israelites to give up everything to him. They're not to enrich themselves through this opportunity. They are to, subs- to, to uh, abstain and make certain that everything that's to be saved goes directly to God. Now, this does not mean that God needs anything from Jericho. Not in the least. 
But this is an opportunity for God to teach the Israelites to follow his commands. He's given them parameters of what it is they're to do. But also, what's he doing? He's teaching them to understand that this is literally the first fruits of their new land. This is the first that they're going to receive. And God's saying, guess what? It needs to come to me. You need to deny yourselves and put me, put me first. And what God's doing is he's teaching them how to give, right? He's teaching them to be patient and to faithfully follow God's command. Because what you'll find in the book of Joshua, this is the only time when that takes place. It's the only time when he tells them not to take anything. This first time, don't touch anything. Everything that's not to be taken and given to me, all of that's to be destroyed. Everything's to be left behind. But from this day forward, guess what? I'm going to bless you in every conquest that we go into. Just wait on me. Be faithful. Trust me and watch what I do. And what God's trying to teach them is about their hearts. This whole thing, this whole exercise, God's trying to address their hearts. He's trying to listen in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 11. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as purposed in his heart. So let him give, not grudgingly, out of, you know, I don't want to, but, or of necessity, I have to, for God loveth the cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye always have all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. As it is written, he hath dispersed abroad, he hath given to the poor, his righteousness remaineth forever. Listen, it all comes from God. That's what he's telling us. Now he that ministereth seed to the sower, both minister bread for your food and multiply your seed and sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. God's pros- our prosperity comes from the Lord, being enriched in everything, to all bountifulness, which causeth through us thanksgiving to God. A thankful heart for everything we have. We should be thankful every day. When we complain about what we don't have and we're all frustrated with what we do not have, man, it's a picture of our unfaithful, our unthankfulness. If we realize and recognize and counted our blessings, so many times when people run through a list of things that are wrong in their life, and you said, I want you to go in comparison, I want you to make a true list of your blessings. Listen, you can walk, you can talk, you can think, you have arms and legs, ten toes and ten fingers, you have food to eat, you have breath to breathe. You have strength enough in your body to walk. You have a mind that's clear. You have all these abilities. You have all this opportunity. You live in a country of freedom. You have all these things. And if we think about that and we compare what we don't have with what we do have, it's like, man, oh, man. Sometimes I think it would change the way we see, would see our world. But then James 1, verse 17, teaches us something. He says this, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, which, with whom is no variableness, neither, neither shadow of turning. So not only does James remind us of where all of our blessings come from, but guess what he's also teaching us? He's teaching us a principle that it's absolutely essential for us to understand in our successful walk with God. In verse 18, of his own will begat he, us, with the word of God. What he's telling us, like, the reason we come to him is through his word. God uses his word, Romans 10, 17. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. God uses his word to speak to us. Verse 18 continues, of his own, right, will begat he, us, uh, with the word of truth. But then he says this, that we should be of a kind of first fruits of his creatures. God's saying that, guess what? I don't want your stuff. I want you. Amen. That's Amen. the difference. It's not about receiving their resources. It's about them giving their resources for God's work. And in doing so, what they do is they reveal their hearts. They reveal what their heart is. 
He's helping them to realize the fact that, guess what? Giving of our resources is not what it's all about. It's about giving of ourselves, sacrificing of ourselves. And just like the Israelites, guess what? It's not because God needs anything from us. Not at all. He just wants our hearts. That's the key. And this entire exercise is about getting their hearts because God knows that the struggle for humanity is where our heart lies. It's either focused on this world or it's focused on God. James 4, verses 1 through 4. Almost done. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lust that war in your members? These desires we have, ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your own, upon your lusts. He says, the problem with your prayers, it's the fact that your prayers are not for what I would have you to have. Your prayers are to fulfill your fleshly desires. I'm not going to further give you things that are going to draw you further from me. God, I want a new car, I want a new car, I want a new car, because guess what? My neighbor has a new car, and I want a new car, because I'm going to show him how awesome I am. What? Guess what? God's not going to provide that new car. But if you said, you know, Lord, my car's broken. The car that I've got, God, you know what? When there's people that have a need, I use this car, and I meet the need. God, if there's people that want to go to church and they couldn't go, they could call me, and I would be there. God, my heart is broken for the things that matter to you. You know what God will do? Miraculously make a way. There are, all of us have stories in our life when we were at a place in our life when we were surrendered to God and He met a need that we just did not think was going to happen. And we go, wow, can you believe what just happened? Because guess what? When we ask according to God's will, He tells us that He will answer it. Yes. problem is most of our requests are not according to God's will. They're according to our will. Yeah. Verse 4 says this, Ye adulterers and adulteresses. He's not talking about physical or sexuality. He's talking about our relationship with God. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, ye unfaithful, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Understand, as children of God, we can, because of where our heart is, we can function as enemies of God. Because our heart is on the world. What a terrible thing to find out. And what we have to ask ourselves today is where are our hearts? Where are our hearts? Man, are they set on the things of God? Where He's our priority? We've got our whole heart set upon achieving what it is that He wants? Or are we so consumed with the world and the trappings that it's given us that it controls our, our thoughts? Listen, God showed us the, the accursed and He showed us the redeemed. And as a born-again child of God, we can look like either one. That's the scary thing. We can look like either one. See, one sees the trappings of the world, and what do they do? They justify their indulgence in it. They find a way to make it palatable to put their fleshly desires <coughs> over God. While the other person consecrates themselves unto God. And when the trappings of the world and the fleshly desires are placed before them, you know what they do? They see them as off limits. We can look like either one. The question is, today which one are we? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the day you've given us. And Lord, I know the message today was hard to hear, but God, I know that I needed to hear it. And Lord, if no one else received anything from the message today, God, I know that you certainly spoke to my heart. 
with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. If you're here today and you say, you know what, Pastor? I'm struggling with my heart. I got some days and I need prayer. Pastor, pray for me because right now in my life, there are some things in my life that are drawing my attention and I'm struggling. I'm fighting the good fight, but God, sometimes, but Lord, sometimes, sometimes I'm losing. Pray for me that I would be strong to stand for you. If that's you today, say, you know what? Pray for me, Pastor. Just pray for me. Amen. I see that. Anybody say, look, I pray for me. I'm struggling right now. And you know what? Some days I need extra prayer. Pray for God to strengthen me. Amen. I see all those hands. Praise God. Praise God. Listen, we're in this together. But listen, if you're here today and you say, look, I don't know. I don't know that I'm even saved. I don't even know what that means. Guys, I'd never been in church my entire life. The night I received Christ was the very first time anybody ever told me who Christ really was. I knew a guy on a cross. I knew some, some, some stories. I heard the story in the Peanuts cartoon that Linus would read, Luke 2.11. But I did not know him personally. I knew of him, but I did not know him. And I'm just telling you this. If you want to receive Christ as your Savior, He loves you more than you can possibly imagine right now, even though you may be at the most wicked place in your life. And as He reaches out to you right now, all He needs you to do is receive it. The Bible says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He died on the cross. Everything has been accomplished. The Bible says it's the gift of God. A gift is offered. It's already paid for, and it does not require anything from us except to receive it. And if you're here today and you say, look, you know what? I've never received that gift. I've never consciously made a choice that I received Christ, and I understood that I'm a sinner, and that sin is going to take me to hell. But man, I want Christ. If you want to receive him today, I'm going to give you an opportunity. It's not a religious ceremony. It has nothing to do with me at all. This is between you and God. If you're watching this recorded and it's 20 years from now, Christ is calling out to your heart and he's simply asking you to respond by faith. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's a promise from the God of the universe. So their heads bowed and eyes closed. Nobody looking around. If you want to receive Christ as your Savior, I'm going I'm to pray out loud. I'm going to ask you to pray in your heart in your mind and you talk to God this is an opportunity for you to receive the gift that he's offering you as we speak you know if he's calling you you just have to respond with our heads bowed and eyes closed repeat after me in your heart and mind if you want to receive Christ as your savior dear Lord I know that I'm a sinner and I am so sorry for my sin I'm asking you right now in the best way I know how to come into my heart to forgive me of my sin and to give me a home in heaven. Lord, I trust you with my life. I trust you with my eternity. By faith, I receive you as my Savior. Lord, thank you for saving me. Thank you for redeeming me. Thank you for giving me a home in heaven. I can't wait to see you. For it's in Jesus' name I pray and give thanks. Amen. Head